Today, we approach a subject that not only has uh, dramatic and drastic implications on how we live out the Christian life together, but this question has bearing on the nature of Christian life and what the Christian life is at all and what Christianity means in the first place. This question even has bearing on who is Jesus Christ and what did he actually come to do? This question then is of central significance in almost every thought process, every action, every decision of life. This is the question. What is God really like? And even asking the question, I'm assuming and asserting that a person can actually answer it. And that is an amazing thing, to know the one true God. And to know that we can actually know what He is like. So what is God really like? I'm putting the emphasis on the word really on purpose. What is He really like? Open your Bibles, if you would, to John's first letter, chapter 4. To let God's Word speak for itself, to tell us who God is, want to turn to this letter, this chapter, beginning in verse 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love God, uh, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this, Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you as the one who, in fact, not only created the world, but governs and rules over all things in an unquestioned and unwavering way. We praise you for making yourself known to us. What a marvelous gift to us, your creatures, that you chose not to hide yourself in heaven, not to remain beyond our comprehension. And nor were you content to be known only in commandment and nature, But you sent your Son to 
reveal to us who you are in perfection, in wisdom, in virtue, and in the flesh. And so now as we approach this text, perhaps one of the most helpful in guiding us to a better understanding of who you really are, give us humility. We all need it so much. There are those of us who may know a great deal about you, but we are wrong in a few areas of our emphasis. We are imbalanced in our understanding of you. There are those of us who are very comfortable with true, but very childish ways of thinking about you. There are those of us who even turn back from the privilege of knowing you at all. So humble all of us in your mercy, we pray. Help us to see and know you as you truly reveal yourself in the person of your Son, Jesus. And if you would, where you are in your own hearts and minds, even if you do not know the Lord, please pray now that the Lord would reveal himself clearly to you as we examine these words from the Apostle John. And also pray for these moments that we would all act in a way that serves our brothers and sisters and that we would allow for concentrated reflection on these glorious and weighty truths. And if you would, finally pray for me that I would be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands to do something this morning that is equivalent to maybe pulling the veil back. I would be able to do that and to show you God's glory, who he really is, and to help you live in light of who he is. Father, we do love you and we trust you. We pray that you would do it this time as you will for your praise and your honor and for our good. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This message will not explore every possible or every major way of answering our central question. What is God really like? I know you may be disappointed that we are not planning to do this this morning. You can laugh. (laughs) Rather, we're taking a more narrow approach. Our approach is to consider God's love as it relates to his wrath. Or, if you like, how his grace and mercy relate to his justice and his moral purity, what some people call his holiness. This text shows us this approach, and it shows us that this is one of the most important ways that we may know the one true God who is there. This text will help us see what God is really like. How his love and his wrath relate in his own heart is an important question to get at the heart of God. But some people, many people, many theologians, present God's so-called attributes as something like, if you can imagine it, a set of scales with, instead of two sides, maybe dozens and dozens of sides in a circle. If you can imagine that, picture that. And we've got all his attributes and we've got to balance it out just right so that nothing is out of order, and there God is, the perfect iceberg of divine perfections. I'll give you one example of this approach of balance from a well-known and well-respected theologian who shall remain nameless to protect the guilty. Speaking specifically of God's love and wrath, or hate, here's what he says, quote, God's attributes are balanced in his divine perfection. They are perfectly balanced. Just as totally as he loves, so totally does he hate. As his love is unmixed, so his hate is unmixed. You'll never understand how great God's love is unless you know how great his hate is. Love and grace, our favorite terms, are void of meaning if God does not hate. Is that really true? Are God's love and God's hate or His wrath perfectly balanced in His heart? 
It may sound good to you on the surface, but I protest, brothers and sisters, this is not what the Bible says about God. Not what he's really like. Do you really think that from before all time, when there was no sin to hate, that God's grace and love were meaningless? That they were void of meaning? Is it true that in all respects, God's hate is just as intense and just as pure and just as unmixed as his love? 1 John 4, 7-21 through 21 will help us see the truth. So let us, with open eyes and hearts and minds, enter the world of the text so that we may better understand the God who is really there and what He is really like. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Each verse from this whole section of John's letter would merit its own sermon, perhaps a sermon series on their own. I'll try to limit my observations to just a few under each verse. And to observations that, number one, relate to the central question of the character of God or what God is really like. And that, number two, speak to how we ought to do life together as the people of God in light of, God who, in light of who God really is. So in that framework of limits, we can immediately see that we are confronted with a conundrum when we embrace the perspective of balance. If you have embraced whether or not you articulate it that way, if you have embraced that idea of balance and all of God's perfections, wrath and hate on the same scale and in the same degree as His love, you're immediately confronted by this verse. Here's what I mean. If they are so balanced, so perfectly balanced in God's nature, then you could say the opposite of this. Let us hate those who are not of us, for hate is from God, and whoever hates has been born of God and knows God. Even to say such a thing makes me feel like I'm calling down a curse upon myself because it is so, so wrong. Right up front, we see immediately that there is a fundamental difference between God's love and His wrath. It is true that God is a God of wrath. He has wrath and will pour out His wrath in fury upon the earth on Judgment Day after the last sunrise. It is also true that we should hate sin just as God does. However, God's love is more fundamental to who God is than His wrath. Further, as we see in a moment, the character of God, which is our central question, is to prefer his love, and the showing of his love over his wrath. This text, verse 7, shows us that there are at least two lines of connection between how we ought to live and who God is. Number one, to be from God, to have your origin in God, is to love like God. This means that if your life is really hidden with Christ in God, then the dominant note of your life and heart towards others will be love. Because, and this is the point, the dominant note of God's very life and His character is His love. And the second connection between who God is and how we ought to live as we examine His character, what He's really like, is that to know God is to love like God. This means that if we have a true, real, insightful knowledge into the character and nature of God, but it doesn't result in love, or it shows itself primarily in love, then it shows we don't really know God. Because the way God knows Himself in the person of His Son is in love. Verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this verse, John is making essentially the same point that he made from the opposite direction. You know, sometimes we preachers get criticized for repeating ourselves, but you can just look at the Apostle John, and it looks like he's repeating himself over and over. Sometimes, like in this text, there's a reason to say the same idea in multiple different ways. The point here that he's making is a very significant one. Love is just not a marker of deep knowledge of God. 
or one way to know that your knowledge of God is genuine. Love is the marker of any true knowledge of God and is the only way to know Him. If you don't love, you don't know God. That's what John is saying. There's only one way that you can know Him, and that is to go deeper into love because God is love. That's his point. If you're dehydrated as an organic being who depends on water, the only way to address that dehydration is by getting water. And no, coffee doesn't count. There's just one way. Your body needs water. And until you get water, you're not going to address the problem of dehydration. You may think that there are multiple valid ways of knowing God, really. Maybe more doctrine or more theology. That's a big one. Maybe more spiritual experiences. And in our day, maybe if you can feel deeply or if you can think that God is talking to you, Those are some of the most popular ways of thinking that we're making progress in knowing God. But if you do not love, you do not know God. Because to love is to know God. We will see how this text defines love here in a bit. But for a moment, let that sink in. If you want to know God and you do not love, or if you stubbornly or sinfully insist on remaining maybe a cold or unloving or selfish person, or a person who only loves those whom it is convenient for you to love, which is not love, then you're being more silly and stupid than trying to quench your thirst and solve your dehydration by eating a handful of rock salt. You really think that's going to work? That you're going to feel less thirsty By doing that, you need water. To know God, you must love. There's no other way. Why is this the case? Why is it the case that you must love in order to know God? Or to love is to know God. Why is that the case? Remember our essential question. What is God really like? This is the case because God is love. In context, John means that the most fundamental characteristic of God, his nature, his posture towards all reality, including himself, is love. Or to say it another way, everything God does ultimately originates in his will to show the glory and magnitude of his love and his delight in his love. I'll say that again. It is very important. Everything God does ultimately originates in His will to show the glory and magnitude of His love and His delight in His love. Some people say, well, what about the holiness of God? More in the Bible we run across the statement God is holy than God is love. Like, aren't you being imbalanced yourself in the way you present this? Because God is holy. Holiness, I need you to understand this. We, we won't drill down here for very far for very long or very far, holiness is not an attribute of God. It is the collective description of his differentness, his otherness. His holiness is as a person or even he himself beholding all that he is and saying, different, different, different. So his love, in many ways, is the ground of his holiness. His love is what drives him to behave in the way that we look at and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Also, what this means for us is that knowing God is less about knowing stuff or more information. The devil, in all likelihood, has better theology than you. He probably knows the answers to all the riddles and all those questions you want to ask somebody when you get to heaven. He was there. But he does not know God in the way that you and I can know God because he will not. He refuses to imitate God. 
But this shows us that to make progress in knowing the one true God who is really there, to know what He is really like, is to behave like Him. I've said this before. I'm not impressed anymore by good theology. I'm not impressed by a young dude who has command of theological terms. And the reason why I'm not is because I know my own heart. Because I've met far too many young guys who have learned a good bit of Greek or Hebrew or theology in general, and they're so puffed up. They're swollen with conceit. And they refuse to love like God, especially when it would mean stop looking down on other peoples that don't know as much as you. You know what impresses me? You know what makes me stand in awe and humble myself and want to change? When I see someone who loves like God. Because you know what? It is not that we can have those who know good theology, those who are brainiac types in the church, and then we have those people over here who are really good at love and compassion and stuff. And it's not just to say that the two have to go together. This text makes clear, if you do not love, you don't know the first thing about God because God is love. Verse 9, This In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Here we get some specifics of what John means and what God means when He uses the word love. We see how this most fundamental characteristic of God is made known. So note, this shows us why this passage applies to our subject. God is showing us who He is in the manifestation of His love. We are not just told that God is love and that love is, or love exists, that His love is a real thing. Rather, we are told that God is love and that His love It's the most fundamental posture of his heart, and we are told that it is shown. That's what that big, fancy word, manifest, means. It means that God's love is shown, or it is demonstrated. It even carries the sense of being established or proven. This is what God was up to in the sending of His Son, to reveal who He is. And what His love is like. Think of it this way. God is love, and the way He shows or proves just how loving He is and how He brings His love to completion is by sending His only Son into the world. Of course we know that it was about His glory. Of course we know that it was about His justice. Of course we know that it was about Him keeping His promises to the patriarchs. But I think it is very, very important for us to say that the most fundamental reason the Father sent the Son into the world, the reason God planned this before the foundation of the world was to prove forever and always just how loving He is. And doing that, setting out to prove just how loving He is, is the most glorifying thing to Him that could ever happen. This is why Jesus is the radiance, the shining out of God's nature. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. But in the coming of the Son, the dominant theme, what we are supposed to see in His life, death, burial, and resurrection is the very core of love in the motive and workings and essence of God. Verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So not only does God, does John tell us how God's love is shown or proven, he tells us what the nature of God's love is in and of itself, and how the love of God relates to the wrath of God. You might have wondered, 
within this passage as we read it, if our central question was, let's, let's answer the question, who God really is, who is He really? And the way we're going to approach that, our approach to answering that question is, how do His love and His wrath interrelate? And then we read the passage and you're like, I don't see His wrath mentioned here. How are you going to use this text to show how the two relate? And here it is. He doesn't use the word wrath or hate or any of those, but he has this word, propitiation. God's love is this, not that we were loving or lovable or deserving to be loved even if we were created in the image of God. That just made matters worse. Rather, God's love is this, that He loves. And in that love, He wills and plans and works and sacrifices and moves heaven and earth quite literally to overcome His wrath in order to bring that love to fruition in our case forever. Propitiation specifically means that a sacrifice is put forward to take wrath out of the equation. In the death of Jesus, the wrath that God rightly had against you and me for our sins and for our rebellion and our following of Satan in our mindset and our pursuit of the things of the world. God took all that wrath in Himself and in His love. See, it was His love that even motivated Him to assuage His own wrath. This is not balanced. This is not wrath unmixed. And it is not perfectly equal in proportion to His love. Propitiation is love overcoming, canceling out wrath. Because of His love, He overwhelms His wrath in the perfect sacrifice of His Son. Do they just cancel each other out? Is it like a positive and negative charge? Sorry to go into too much physics this early in the morning. Is it like a positive and negative charge? You've got God's wrath over here and you've got His love over here. And in the cross, these perfectly balanced attributes hit each other and dissolve. No, because after the act of propitiation, that love that motivated God to provide the sacrifice in the first place only paves the way for more love forever. God's design was to take that wrath away because God is love. People will say, God is a God of love. Yes, yes, but He is also a God of wrath too. Almost as if to say, don't emphasize His love to the point of blotting out His wrath. Do you realize that that is exactly what God Himself is doing in your case if you're ever to be saved. That's what the atonement means. That He is acting upon His love in a way to cancel out and blot out His wrath. This is why I titled the sermon The Character of God and not The Love of God. There would almost be no disagreement or no friction with maybe deep-seated convictions that you have about the character and nature of God if I just talked about the love of God by itself. What we're talking about is how His love relates to His wrath. There is something in God that prefers His love to be the dominant note. And that is His character. That is how He is holy Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. He will not... He will not always chide. Nor will he keep his anger forever. You can't say the opposite about his love. To do so would mean that we are undone. Our hope is grounded on the fact that God wants His love to be a bigger deal. 
And even of the wicked, he says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. How many of you, it's Reformation Sunday, so I feel like I can say this, how many of you, Reformed brothers or sisters, in debates with a particular person that you're trying to persuade of your preferred soteriology, like I myself, have come across this verse, God takes no delight in the death of wicked, and you almost wish God had never said that. So to make it easier for you to persuade the people you're trying to convince that your soteriology is right. All the while not understanding that the reason you are saved is because of this posture in God's heart that He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. If it were true that He were to take delight in the death of the wicked, there would have never been a cross. So many more passages of scriptures could be offered to show this disparity this intentional shining out of the disparity in God's heart between His wrath, His anger, His hate, and His love. Even towards the unrepentant, why will you die? All the day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and faithless generation. What this shows us is not so much something about the nature of his love or wrath on their own. This shows us his character. Or maybe we could even say something like this, that his basic will, the brute will of God, the I am, that at, the, at the very bottom of what he wants to do, is that he delights more in his love and he delights in wrath. This is what God is really like. God wills to show and prove His love and to tether His glory more to the showing of His love than to the showing of His wrath. And He will go to greater lengths in order to show and prove His love than to show and prove His wrath. If that were not true, again, there would be no crucifixion of the Son of God. Even in his punishment of unrepentant sinners and the faithless, the main point, I think, even in that, which will happen if we persist in our sin and faithlessness and unbelief, is to underscore the glory of his love. To reject such a love is the most blasphemous, abominable thing any person could ever do. Your guilt is compounded by rejecting His love made possible by the death of Jesus Christ. It is a rejection of all that is right and good and true. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You should know just... For purposes of clarity, when you encounter the word so in your Bible, it does not mean anything having to do with the intensity of something. Typically, the way that we read this, I'm sorry if this overturns your preferences in, in interpretation, but John 3.16 doesn't mean what you think it means. It is true that the love of God is intense, but that's not the point that John is making, Jesus is making in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. What we think he means there when we read it is that he so, 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 so. You know, little kids do this. They just say it over and over and over and over and over and over in, in a way to intensify the statement of what, what's about to come next. That's not grammatically correct. It means in this way. This is the way that God loved the world, that he sent his son when we encounter the word so here, if God so loved us, it, this is what he's meaning. If this is how God loves us, that his love is the dominant force in his posture towards us, even overcoming and canceling out his wrath, then we ought to love one another in the same way. This is a basic exhortation. We ought to love one another, but 
The depth of it, of course, outstrips the parameters of any one sermon or even a series of sermons that that you are to look at the love of God and Him offering His Son as a sacrifice to take away His wrath so that His love could endure to a Jew forever. And look at that love and say, that's how I'm going to love my brothers and sisters. That's just basic Christian ethics. But it's so glorious. But this is exactly where the character of God comes to bear on the way that we live. We won't spend a ton of time beating this drum of loving one another because we talk about it all the time. But I want us to understand a more specific point. What you believe about the love of God for you, what that love is really like, and the clarity with which you see it, will determine how you are towards your brothers and sisters. God's love, His manner of love, and the extent of His love creates an oughtness for us to behave in the same way towards those who are in God. So if you neglect your brothers and sisters, And essentially what you're saying is, I think God neglects me. If you don't prefer your brothers and sisters and sacrifice for them, then what you're saying essentially is, I don't really see or understand the depth of the sacrifice of God for me. If you are self-focused, and only enter into relationships when it's convenient for you, then essentially what you're saying is that God is self-focused and only enters into relationship when it's convenient for Him. The way you behave towards your brothers and sisters is a mirror, a cross-section of what you believe about the love of God for you. So, what is He really like? This is the ultimate question. If it is all just a balancing act of divine attributes, then you have no motivation, you have no reason to let love dominate your life and your posture towards your brothers and sisters. Because in your mind and heart, deep down there, even if you would never say it this way, you don't really believe God's love dominates His posture towards all creation and towards you and your brothers and sisters. I mentioned this in our series on shepherding. Obviously, when you see a harsh, mean, domineering shepherd, pastor, that means that they've got some personal issues, some character issues, and some theology issues having to do with the church, having to do with shepherding, but ultimately they have a problem in their theology proper, meaning that's what they think God is like. We're often at odds with ourselves. We would affirm, on the one hand, God is love, and we would say all these things that sound pretty on a Sunday morning, but then your behavior towards your brothers and sisters shows what you really believe about the nature and character of God. And this is why confession is so important, brothers and sisters. When we see that we do not match up with the theology that we know and love, we confess that. And when we do so, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. I think this verse is is, is wonderful, beautiful. It shows us John's burden in writing this whole section. This is the problem. God is an invisible, omnipotent spirit. And no one has seen Him with their eyes, nor can they see Him without being obliterated. That's almost theologically, philosophically necessary, even if you don't believe in Christianity. For you, a contingent physical being, to come up against ultimate reality and all that is that was there from eternity in whatever person or thing got this whole thing started, like you can't do that. You can't see God and live. There is an inherent inaccessibility of God, no matter what religion you're talking about. In all the major religions, There is some impossible gap, some vast gulf between humans and the divine or ultimate reality. But yet, we say, as Christians, that we really can know what God is like. God can be known. So how do we see 
A God who cannot be seen. That's the burden of this whole section, I believe, and why John is writing it. Our intuitive answer, even in line with what I just said, would be to say, well, just look at Jesus. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. Well, he's in heaven right now. And further, those who were actually around him and saw him perform miracles, exercise power over the dead, even in his own case, and ascend to heaven, were doubting. They saw all that power and majesty and they didn't understand. So the answer is a little bit more precise than saying, just look at Jesus if you want to see God. Though generally, of course, that's true. Here's what John says, though. No one has ever seen God, and if, if you want to write in your Bibles, I usually don't do this because my handwriting's terrible, but if you want to write the word, but, right after, no one has ever seen God. Because that's, that's the sense that the grammar carries. No one has ever seen God, but... If we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. Even though you cannot see God, if you love like He loves, if you extend the same kind of love to others, God Himself abides in you. And His love, which is His most fundamental characteristic, the posture of His heart that He is most committed to bringing to fruition, comes to completion in your heart. In your heart. Not somewhere up in heaven, not at the seminaries, not in the libraries, delving down into the deepest text that you can find, not through necessarily understanding Greek or Hebrew, though that's really fun and exciting, through love. That's how you see the God who cannot be seen. How this happens, we'll see when we get down to verse 17. But for now... What is so massive and stunning here is that John indicates that we not only know God, what He is really like through love of others, but that the person who loves in this way, following the example of the Father in sending His Son to die for us, becomes a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We'll see the implications of that in verses 13 through 21. The thing I want to underscore is this. You, you really do need to see, don't you see, the interconnectedness between your walk with God and your interactions and life together with your brothers and sisters in this room. Typically, I, I'm... There, there, there's a long list of historical reasons why this is the case. Typically, when we think about spiritual disciplines, in our minds, when we imagine those, we're all by ourselves. There is a time for sacred solitude and sanctified withdrawal. Jesus himself goes away and prays by himself. But that's not where we saw his love. We saw his love and we begin to see who God is by loving one another, which means, following the example of Jesus, giving to others what they most need. John is so bold to say the word if. If we love each other, God abides in us. We would say, well... If you confess that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved and that you receive the Holy Spirit, all this stuff. He's so bold as to say, yeah, you can talk to me whatever you like about the process of justification and the nature of faith, but we can simplify it all to this. Do you really love? And if you love, following the example of the Lord, then God's Spirit does abide in you. That is bold. And it's an encouraging proof because if you find even a smidgen of love in your heart towards people that you would not otherwise love, then you know that God is at work and is abiding in you. We as a church, we get together in some measure to help you build your own assurance. So you have opportunity to love 
like God loves. And to begin to walk and live out of the fact that God Himself lives in you. So remember our central question. What is God really like? He's a God who insists that only through loving others will you ever really love or know Him. A few implications flow from these assertions that John makes in the next verses that come. We'll go through these quickly. Verse 13, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God God abides in Him and He in God. The first implication is this. Of all that we've heard, of all of this analysis of who God is really like and how His love relates to His wrath and what He's actually doing in sending His Son, the first implication is this. Confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Seems like a sudden shift. But in the context of our question, remember what John is saying. To become a Christian, to have the Holy Spirit, and all of these wonderful blessings of salvation, and the forgiveness, and the wrath of God taken away from you, paid by the blood of Jesus, is all received, in this text at least, by confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. What does that mean? Remember, John is helping us know what God is really like to help us see God. So to confess that Jesus is the Son of God is essentially to agree with God that Jesus is what He is like. That's a different perspective on the meaning of faith. It it requires the same thing because if you agree with God that what He reveals about Himself in Jesus is true, then you are also trusting in Him. That's how they're connected. Confession and trusting. I think this explains the simplicity of the call to salvation when Jesus essentially says, Believe that I am He. Believe that I am He. Rejecting Jesus then is to say to God, I don't like what you say about yourself. It is to say to him, you're not that way. You can't be that way. Many acknowledge a God. and Maybe say something like, certainly not all of this could have happened by random chance or be created from nothing. But they will then say it is impossible to know who or what started it all. That nothing can be known really about who God is directly. But to say that you cannot know anything about God or anything about who or what started this all is the same thing to claim omniscience. Of course, it sounds more humble to say something like, well, we just can't know who God is or what He is like or what ultimate reality is. We just can't know that. But it's just rank pride. It's actually one of the most arrogant things that a person can think to think that you, of all people, that you have searched high and low under every rock, behind every leaf, on the dark side of the moon, in the farthest reaches of the the galaxy, past the event horizon and back, and come back from all that and said, the verdict is empty. Nothing can be known. Nothing can be known about God or about who or what started this whole thing. That, my friend, puts you in the driver's seat on the throne, and on the judge's bench over all reality, and there is only one who may rightly sit there. Further, what if God, or whomever, or whatever got all this started, actually has said something about himself and who he is? Then to say that truth about him can't be known is essentially putting yourself at odds with the one who got it all started. Of course, most religions of the world claim to know something about whomever or whatever got all of this started. Every worldview has the answer, essentially, to what is the nature of ultimate reality. But no other religion other than Christianity is founded on the teachings of a person who both claimed to be ultimate reality and the perfect revelation of what God is really like and proved it by rising from the dead. 
So yes, we can know the answer to our question because at the very heart of the matter, God Himself took on flesh and showed us what He is really like in the manifestation of His love and the love of the Father, even to the point of death. Verse 16, So we have come to know and to believe the love of God, the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The second implication of this teaching about who God is, what he is really like, is this. Know and believe in the love of God that he has for you by abiding in love. This is what he's really like. His love is for you. He has willed that His never-ending love would overcome and put to an end His wrath in your case in the death of Jesus. To abide in His love has two senses. To live in it and to live out of it. Here's what I mean. The love of God is our security and sanctuary. It's, it's, it's home base, if you will. It's where we go to, to find our rest and our our. our um, our solace, our peace is found in God's love. That's what it means, half of what it means to abide in God's love. But to abide in God's love also means that His love becomes the base of operations. Where out of a confidence and a settled belief in God's love for us, we go and live a certain way towards others because we are secure in His love. If you are really abiding in His love, that's what it'll look like for you. As simple as it really sounds, a lot of ministry, a lot of gospel preaching is just trying to persuade people and to remind them just how much God loves them. We lack stability in life not because of our circumstances, not because of tumultuous times, but because we forget or disbelieve the love of God. The love of God is shown, it is proven, it is made real and tangible in the sending of His Son. He has proven that His will towards you is to overcome His wrath. He loves you. He really does. We lack a feeling of sanctuary, not because we don't have pristine homes or yards or pretty church buildings. We lack that feeling of sanctuary because we do not see that we are surrounded by the love of God. You are hedged and hemmed in on every side by His love. It is pressing down from above and coming up from beneath. You are in His love if you are in Christ. Have you come to believe the love that God has for you? That's what believing that Jesus is the Son of God means. Those might not immediately connect in your mind, but Christian maturity in many ways is coming to understand that those mean essentially the exact same thing. Believing that God loves you and confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. Dear Christian, do you really believe that God really abides in you and you in God? Can others tell by your face? Can others tell by what you worry about? Can others tell by your joy? Can others tell by how you lament with hope? What is the real effect of being the dwelling place of God and God taking up His residence in you by His Spirit? Verse 17. By this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence on the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. We saw earlier that, love, that God's own love is perfected in us as we love others. And now we see how 
this takes place. When he says, by this, he's referring back. He's referring back to the reality of abiding in God's love. And him abiding in you as the cause and the result. This is how his own love comes to completion. Here's the third implication then. If this is all true, if this is how God loves us and his will towards you, then you can have confidence for the day of judgment. So have it. Take confidence towards the day of judgment. Look, I don't know your heart, and so I don't know how much this is a struggle for you or not, if you think about it very much. Maybe the reason you don't think about it is because if you were to think about it, you wouldn't have confidence. So I ask this question with all, this question with all love and mercy. Do you actually have confidence for the day of judgment? This was essentially, essentially the issue for Martin Luther. Because the system surrounding justification and how salvation works for the Roman Catholic Church did not grant confidence for the Day of Judgment. And it killed him, nearly, even on a psychological level. Dread, fear, anxiety, looking ahead and knowing that he would have to stand before a holy God. Confidence could not be found. It is true that the theology of justification by faith alone was the core theological recovery on a formal level. But the Reformation was about much, much more than that. The Reformation at its heart was a recovery of what God is really like. Is God a God of wrath and love in the same way? Ready to damn you without concern or care because you're a dirty, rotten sinner? Better work hard, gain His favor, believe the right things, put yourself in the right frame of mind, pray enough, give enough. And on and on we could go. What Luther recovered in the doctrine of justification by faith alone is simply an extension of the belief that God's most fundamental posture in His heart towards us, even towards unrepentant sinners... It's a desire for his love to overcome his wrath. Here's how Luther himself says it after he came to understand justification by faith in reading Romans. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy of God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul, referring to Romans 3, became to me a gate into heaven. If you have true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith that you should look upon His fatherly friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as an angry God does not see Him rightly but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across His face. This is what He is really like. In love, because of His great love, He justifies the one who merely trusts in the Lord Jesus, or to use the words of this passage, the one who agrees with God that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of Him and His love receives all the benefits of salvation. Verse 18, very quickly. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fourth implication, very quickly, do not fear. We've been talking about confidence for the day of judgment and how trust in God or believing that Jesus is the Son of God gives us confidence for the day of judgment. But you can also have confidence but still be afraid. You can be 100% convinced that God will accept you into his kingdom, but you can still fear and cringe at the thought of answering for all you do. Here's the thing. Even though, as we saw last week, there may be Christians who enter into glory with loss, all of your work, stubble, hay, straw, being burned up before you enter into your reward, Regardless of all how that goes, you can have this confidence. If God has this fundamental posture in his heart, even if that needs to take place, you will know that he is loving. And you can be confident in his fatherly love for you, even in view of answering for every single thing. The scripture says that preachers, teachers will be held to a stricter standard. How does that not just create paralyzing fear in my case? Because I believe God loves me. And regardless of what has to happen between now and the eternal state, I can trust He loves me. There are two ways of not being perfected in love. Number one is not being confident that the Father loves you. You must be confident that He's not going to mistreat you and everything ultimately originates in His love and proving His love to you. The second way of not being perfected in His love is, think of it this way, if you abide in His love now and you live your life out of that love like we talked about earlier, resting in His love, then you have nothing to worry about for the day of judgment. Not being perfected in His love is refusing to live out of that love towards others. If you do, if you're persuaded of his love for you, then you will love others and then nothing's going to get burned up. And that final day represents nothing but blessing for you. Verses 19 through 21 as we conclude. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The text reiterates what has already been said. The principle of how you treat others is a reflection of what you believe about God. This is how Christ was himself. Think about this. The way Jesus, even Jesus himself, proved that he really understood the love of God was by loving us, even to the point of death. This is why he was and is the embodiment, the proving, the showing of the love of God, because of how he loved us. The mystery of the work of Christ is this. Not only was God's love shown for us in the sending of his Son, but even Jesus' love of the Father is shown in His obedience. In this way, the love of Christ for His Father was manifest to us, that He laid down His life for us. The degree and intensity of Jesus' love for the Father is brought to perfection in His love for us. This is what He's really like. God has created a situation whereby to prove his most fundamental characteristic will result in your eternal salvation. Do you know how secure you are in Christ, brother and sister? You know how safe you are in his love. The only question, brothers and sisters, is if you will dare to believe that this is in fact his character as he reveals it to be. 
will you dare to live as if it is really true? Let's pray. Father, you are good. And we scarcely can understand the depth of saying that. You have shown us your goodness. You have shown us your kindness. You have shown us your mercy. And you have caught us up into your desire to be known as a God who loves. Help us in the same way that you put away your wrath Help us put away our anger and bitterness and frustrations, even if it is righteous anger. Help us put all that away towards our brothers and sisters because that's what you did. Grant us sight. We would see your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.